We have been going through the book of Acts. We have seen starts off with the ascension of Jesus Christ and his his commission to the apostles. They were to, the, the instructions he gave, you wait to be endued with power from on high. We see that hitting in Acts chapter 2. And we see the, the apostles preaching with great power. We see thousands coming to know the Lord, all taking place in Jerusalem in those first several chapters. And thousands upon thousands are being converted. We see issues arising by chapter 7 because of the multitudes of converts between the Grecians, Hellenistic converts, and, and those who grew up in Israel. And so they selected um, men to assist the apostles so they can concentrate still on the Word of God, on prayer, on preaching. <coughs> and, of course, they solved, they solved the problem. We looked at that. We were introduced to a man named Stephen, who I'll talk a little bit more about today once again. And then we see a mass. We, we saw persecution taking place in those first several chapters, but are primarily focused on the apostles. The, 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 the leadership of the nation of Israel went after the apostles. They were the leaders. They imprisoned them. They beat them. But to no avail. Um, the, this movement, as they saw it, was spreading rapidly and growing simply because God was in it. Um, it was truth. And, and, and those in Israel were recognizing that there, there were those who were still genuinely seeking truth in the true God. And anyhow, when we get into the conclusion of chapter 7, um, we are introduced to this man named Saul. And he is the one who gives the authority to uh, 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 commit the very first uh, uh, murder, the first martyrdom of a Christian, a man named Stephen. And so, but let's get into chapter 9. We now uh, come back to this man here. We, we Chapter 8, we saw the conversion of, of the Ethiopian eunuch. It was just a great example of, of how God works. Um, and, uh, but now we come to chapter 9, verse 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed... <clears throat> Excuse me. He came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Is it hard for thee to kick against the pricks? And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth. When his eyes were open, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, neither did eat nor drink. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I love you. Lord, I ask your blessing upon the message today. Lord, I pray that you'd be glorified and honored in all that's said and done. Lord, please work. I pray there's any here who has never truly been converted. Lord, I pray for that conviction and that drawing this morning that even today they repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, for those of us who do belong to you, Lord, help us once again to see your incredible grace. Lord, may you use this to strengthen us and draw us closer to you. Lord, I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, hold on. 
Today, again, we're going to be looking at one of the most important conversions in all of human history. The man Saul, who would later have to have his name changed to Paul. Not only is this conversion one of the most important in all of history and the gospel, but it's, it is an amazing story of change, of a life completely changed, of redemption, of mercy, of sacrifice, of love. It really is an incredible what takes place with this man's life. This man will end up writing basically half of the New Testament books. The Lord is going to use him to pen these books in. The man is going to suffer greatly for the cause of Christ. We're going to see a transition now in the book of Acts. So far, these first nine, ten chapters that, that we're coming into have focused on the life of Peter and his leadership with the gospel. That's going to change. We're going to see Peter again on Acts chapter 10, some events in 11. But then once we get to 12, through the rest of the book, it will focus on the ministry of this man who we're looking at his conversion today. His conversion, Saul's conversion, was pivotal, pivotal for what happens um, in regards to the gospel and the church. He becomes the vessel that God will use in a tremendous way. Again, a man who will suffer greatly for the cause of Christ and be used just in, in, in an equal and just great way. One common commentator said of, of Saul this, of his life, he said, He is such a unique individual. By birth a Jew, by conviction a Pharisee, by citizenship a Roman, by education a Greek, and then by grace a Christian. He became a missionary, a theologian, an evangelist, a pastor, a teacher, a preacher, an organizer, a leader, a thinker, a statesman, and a fighter. So, let's, let's get first a little bit acquainted with Saul. Who this man is, who this man will be used to really uh, uh, begin to change the world. We first meet him, of course, as I've already mentioned, at the end of Acts chapter 7, at the stoning of Stephen. Stephen, of course, was a Hellenistic Jew brought in to solve the problems we see taking place in Acts chapter 7. He was a brilliant man, very intelligent. Um, very well educated, one of the, again, one of the very first deacons. And he happened, when he, when he was in Jerusalem, he would go to the Hellenistic synagogues and he happened to go to one that would belong to this man named Saul. Those of the Tarsus region, it was their synagogue in Jerusalem. Stephen heads there and he preaches Christ. And as we know, as we looked at that at the conclusion of Acts chapter 7, they debated with Stephen. I believe the man who no doubt led that debate would have been Saul, although it doesn't tell us who it was. And of course, as they debated with Stephen, the Bible was clear, they really couldn't answer him. His arguments were so thorough, he spoke so, he was able to articulate in such an incredible way. His arguments were sound and solid, based in Scripture. And they were furious at him. It led to his death, his stoning. And of course, it was Saul who gave authority for his stoning in that, at the conclusion there of chapter 7, which I believe, again, supports the idea that he was the one debating with. He was the leader there in that synagogue. <clears throat> Saul grew up, we know, in Tarsus, a city in Asia Minor, sits on the border of Syria and Turkey. Uh, Tarsus was a very popular city in this day. Uh, it was well known for its university. It was one of the three great universities sat in Tarsus in the ancient world. The other great universities were in Athens and in Alexandria, Egypt. It was the equivalent to those universities in our day would be like a Harvard, a Yale, or a Princeton. It was their Ivy League. And this is the town that Paul grew up in. 
It was very cosmopolitan as a result of the universities. They had an incredibly important commercial wharf. It was on a river. Um, Saul's father, we know, was a Jew, but also a Roman citizen. This would, this would help Paul greatly. Um, it, it's also thought likely that Paul's father was a Pharisee. At 13, Paul would have had to have learned a trade. A trade that was common there in Tarsus was that of tent making, that of taking goat's hairs, weaving them together into different strips and taking those strips and forming them into a tent. That would be the trade that this man would learn, and it would come to play later on in his ministry as well. Now, some, some years after turning 13, but not too far, his father would have moved him back to Jerusalem. We know that because based on what school that Paul tells us that he attended. Paul attended a, a, a school back in Jerusalem that was led by a man named Gamaliel. He was incredible. He's still considered one of the greatest teachers of Jewish law ever. This would be the school that his dad would put him in. Um, this man was actually called, a, a nickname he had, the beauty of the law. Uh, the reason why he was called that was because of how well he articulated the law. He presented it in such a beautiful way. And so Paul sat underneath him. So while Paul was there, he would have been memorizing Old Testament scripture, years of intense question and answering, learning how to argue, how to debate back and forth. He'd become an expert in Judaism, an expert in the Old Testament. And we know he was one of his key students. Many theologians believe that Paul was likely to be the one to take over that school. It is, it is uh, uh, most likely, this is an argument from silence right now, that Paul never met Christ during his earthly ministry. He likely, at some point after school, returned back to Tarsus, possibly even Damascus. Um, and I'll, I'll get more into that probably later today. If I get to that, it's not really an important point. I, I might get to that, I might not. But just because Paul never references meeting Christ during his earthly ministry. So it's very doubtful that that took place. Again, he probably was in Tarsus, or I, I believe possibly even in Damascus. Um, Saul was a man... Uh, um, that followed the law. He was passionate about it. As he said in Philippians chapter 3, I mean, he, he listed his pedigree there. Circumcised the eighth day, a Hebrew of the Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, as to the law of Pharisee, he said himself concerning the law, blameless. He wasn't a hypocrite. He was a man who was passionate about God. But what he's getting ready to see, even though he's passionate, he's wrong. He's wrong. In his mind, one of the greatest enemies to the law is Jesus Christ. Paul wants to end it. He has seen this, this movement gain steam. There are now, keep in mind, we're probably dealing with somewhere between 30 and 40,000 who have converted. Paul, this, this, he hated it. It bothered him. He wants to end it. Keep this in mind. Saul was brilliant. He knew it, there were those who wanted to compromise with it, and they believed both could sort of coexist. But Paul knew that's not possible. Christianity and Judaism could not coexist together as one in any form. The two were incompatible, and he knew it. He knew one was right and the other wrong. He knew both could not be right. Either Christ was Messiah or he wasn't. Either Judaism was obsolete or Christianity was a false religion. 
Today, people like to forget those absolutes when it comes to things and just pretend those absolutes don't even exist. Paul was not that man. Saul could not reconcile his Messiah dying on a cross. After all, the Bible said, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So how could he possibly be the Messiah in his mind? How could he be, the, be accursed and yet the Son of God, the Messiah? He will come to see, though, it was for him that he became accursed. Saul concluded Jesus had to be a blasphemer as he was charged. And that death of Stephen clearly emboldened him, and he goes on an absolute tear persecuting Christians. The Christians, those converts, became very afraid of Saul, which would be the reason why after his conversion he has to change his name. This is where we pick up in Acts chapter 9. He's on this tear. I'm going to break this section down to three C's if you want to write them down. We're going to see his commission, his conversion, and his contemplation. First of all, the first couple of verses, his commission. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus and to the synagogues that if, uh, that if he found anywhere of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Now throughout this, I'll be referencing also Paul's testimony to the events of this day, which we have recorded also in Acts 22 and Acts chapter 26. So here we have Saul. He goes before the Sanhedrin. He had been perse- his persecution has been focused right there in Jerusalem and Judea. But now they're, they're spreading. They're fleeing. They're running away. Remember, we went, through the, we went through the book of James. James, who was the half-brother of the Lord, becomes the pastor at the church at Jerusalem. His church scattered. They took off because of the mass persecution that was taking place, being led by this man. That's why he writes that epistle. That's why James goes out concerned about his congregation that had been scattered. So he goes before the Sanhedrin, wanting letters from the high priest, giving him authority to take it into other places. He said, I want to go to Damascus. And there's a reason why he would choose Damascus. I'll get into that here in just a few minutes. It says that he was breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. The word uh, breathing out here is expressive of, of, of any deep, agitating emotion. It's used, in the, the same word he, we, we find used in different uh, um, writings from this same time frame. Um, it means, it, it means to, to breathe rapidly, violently. It's an expressive of, of a violent anger. So he is using intimidation. He is threatening, but he's also backing up those threats. The word slaughter is used here. The Greek word that is used here is used a total of ten times in the New Testament. Nine of those times the word is used, it's translated as murder was slain one time. It was the Greek word for murder. That's what he's doing. He is killing those. Just like with Stephen, he gave the permission for his martyrdom. Now he is leading his own little police force. 
He is putting those in prison. He's threatening. He's breaking up families. And he will kill you, and the people know it. And he doesn't care if you're a man or a woman. He doesn't care. Think of the fear this would produce. They know the man has authority. He comes with force. He'll throw you in prison, or he will kill you. He wants to stomp out Christianity. He is leading the charge. So he goes before the Sanhedrin. As the movement spreads, he says, listen, I want to head to Damascus. Give me authority to take the force and go there. Let me take my men and head there. They were more than happy to oblige. They give him the authority he wants. Damascus is one of the oldest cities in the world. We already see it in existence at the time of Abraham. Incredible. In ancient times, it was called by one writer, a hand, as referencing Damascus, a handful of pearls and a goblet of emeralds. It was considered a lovely white city in a green forested area of plains and trees. Orientals of the day called Damascus the paradise on earth. Had a population at this time, somewhere probably going on 200,000. 150 to 200,000 is what is estimated the population when Paul is going to be heading to Damascus. There is a large Jewish population there. This is why Paul is going to be heading there. It had many synagogues throughout. It is estimated by historians that there were tens of thousands of Jews who lived in Damascus. So, when the Christians left Jerusalem, what Paul knew was this. They were all likely to have family or know somebody that was there. He knew that's the likely city they're going to head to. That's why he's choosing this place. <clears throat> there would be work there for them to do. They had the port, industry, academia. Oh, there, there was so much for them, so he knew many would head to this area. They had the multitudes of synagogues that were present. Um, and, and the city was, was in a good location, 60 miles from the Mediterranean Sea, um, right at that border of Syria and Turkey today. It's about a, what's amazing is when I read and study this, I'll read four places, and four places gave me a different mileage range between Jerusalem and um, Damascus. I thought that was funny. How can it vary from so many different places? It looks like somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 miles. Would, I took the medium of all of them. Just took the four, divided them together. That's what I got, about 150 miles. <clears throat> And, by the way, in the ancient times, this would also be the capital at this time as well. It is said that in, in shortly after this time frame, in AD 66, with the, with the Roman persecution taking place, there were 20,000 Jews that were slaughtered in Damascus. Uh, I bring that up just to show you again just how large the population was of, of Jews that were present there. So Paul gets his forces together, and he heads on this 150-mile journey from Jerusalem to Damascus. Now, you keep in mind, while he's on this journey, the words and the conduct of Stephen, when Stephen preached, are haunting him. He knows he's probably one of the only men that he's ever met that he couldn't argue with. That he couldn't respond. I believe that conviction, and we can tell by Christ's words to him, is leading to the fierceness with him wanting to stomp this out, thinking it will end this conviction in his own heart. So now we come to his conversion. 
Let's look at verses 3 through 7. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Is it hard for thee to kick against the pricks? And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were open, he saw no man, <coughs> Excuse me, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there. Three, well, I'll come back to verse 9 later. We'll stop there. So, they leave Jerusalem. It's going to take this, it's going to take this group of men about six days to get there. They're going to travel about six days. So they're getting close to Damascus. This is the sixth day. No doubt they can see the buildings, the walls. It's coming into view. They're on, again, the last day of their travel. You have a man who's full of pride, uh, who believes he's on a mission from God himself, has passion for the true God, heading into Damascus to imprison, to murder, but he's about to be humbled forever. He's about to be humbled and, excuse me, and forever have his life changed. He's going to meet in person the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time. So they're traveling. They're, they're getting very close to Damascus. They're almost into the city. And all of a sudden, a bright light hits and they all fall to the ground in complete terror. Keep in mind, according to Acts chapter 22, Paul gives us the time of day when the light hit. It's noon. The sun's out bright. And yet something takes place where this light hits them. What Paul calls a light from heaven. It hits them and they all just collapse and fall down. They're afraid. This magnificent, powerful light hits them. We know from Scripture, again, it was a supernatural light from heaven itself. The other men all would be crawling around disoriented, wondering what was taking place. We know, as we put together Acts 9, 22, and 26, we know that they, that they heard a voice, but they could not distinguish any words. It's similar to what we see taking place in John chapter 12. And so, so they're, they're able to basically almost to get back up to their feet, confused, dazed, what's taking place. They can hear something, but they can't distinguish. And so... Paul being knocked down is still, he's not moving. We know from Ananias' testimony, what Paul says later on, he has the Lord Jesus Christ right there in glorified form. Just think of that. He falls to the earth. He hears the voice cry out, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? You could just imagine. Saul, at this point, I am convinced. Saul already knows exactly who this is. And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Is it hard for thee to kick against the pricks? I mean, you can just see what's going on here. Here he's trembling. He's astonished. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Hmm. The Lord Jesus Christ appears to Paul in this glorified form. 
Paul hears the voice calling his name, Saul, Saul. The repeating that emphasis, he did this with Martha, if you remember. Martha, Martha. He did it with Simon Peter. Simon, Simon. Satan had the desire to sift thee like wheat. He did it with the city of Jerusalem when he was weeping over it, repeating the name. He always did that with a heart, with passion, with emphasis when he was repeating. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? The truth of this would hit Saul like a dagger, piercing his heart. The realization is setting in. Right now, I've been wrong. I'm not fighting for God. I'm fighting against God. If this man is going to get saved, he's going to have to lose his religion to gain the righteousness of Christ. Paul is is starting to understand. You can just see the thoughts that are hitting his head. By the way, on a side note, think of how dangerous it is for the world, as they have for 2,000 years. But when they do go after Christians for persecution, it's the same thing as going after the Son of God, which is what the world battle is all about anyhow. It's really not about us. It's not. It is about the Son of God. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. The God who is there. The God who brings absolutes. The God before whom all men will stand. That's where the battle rages. Paul asked who this is. And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Is it hard for thee to kick against the pricks? Now this, this is a tool used by cattle, a goad. He had been kicking against these goads. Any sharp pointed instrument they would use to direct the cattle. To get them to move in the direction that they wanted them to go, it would, it would pierce them. And we see this same thing used in the book of, of Judges when Shamgar in, used it to, to slay 600 men with it. So, what does it mean that Paul's kicking against it? He's just hurting himself. He's fighting that inner battle. That conviction from Stephen's sermon is hitting him. He's kicking against it, he's fighting against it. He's literally tormenting his own conscience by fighting against God. Listen, you can't fight God, rebel against God, or make war against God and not feel the pain. He's feeling the pain of that battle that's been going on in his mind. The Lord knows it's there, and that's what he asked him about. Is it, it's hard for thee, isn't it? One thing he knew about Paul was Paul did desire truth. But he couldn't come to that place of trying to put this all together when he heard Stephen speak again. I believe this is fueling his motivation for why he's so passionately attacking the Christian faith. The conviction was strong. <clears throat> then it's at this point that I believe, and I'm, I'm going to try and demonstrate it. It really doesn't matter the exact point, but I believe at this point, Saul is converted. Look at what he says in the next verse. Verse 6 is the marks of a converted person. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. We see him trembling. We see he is ast uh, he's astonished. And he is submitting to the Lord, acknowledging Him as Lord now. There's no more fighting. He knows who He is. He's not arguing the point now. Lord, what will You have me to do? 
We see a pattern for conversion here that we see throughout all of Scripture. We see God working on his heart. We see God giving conviction. It's like that goad on his conscience, pricking him. That conviction is present. The Lord deals with the sin that sends all men to hell. And that is the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why are you persecuting me? I'm the answer. I am the Messiah. The Holy Spirit tells us in John chapter 16 that it is the work of the, of the Holy... Uh, it's recorded in John chapter 16. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to convict men of sin. Why? Because they believe not on Christ. He is the answer, yet many fight it. And we see him humbling himself now. Acknowledging him. It is the Lord. It's no longer in a question form. Lord, who's he saying that to? Jesus Christ. What wilt thou have me to do? I'm yours. It's done. It's at this point, I believe, he places his faith and repentance on the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, but this isn't enough for salvation. Oh, yes, it is. You forget the man we're dealing with here. We're dealing with a man who was already here when the clearest presentations of the gospel ever given by a man named Stephen. He has all the knowledge he needs. He heard Stephen present the argument of, uh, of why Jesus was in fact the Messiah and why he died on the cross and the fact that he was alive. He's heard it all. You see, when the Lord appeared, just the fact that he knows he's alive confirmed everything Stephen said. Paul would have to convince himself to go on the tear that he did that Jesus was just a dead man. He knows that isn't true now. So we see a man with the marks of conversion on his life I'm humbled, obedient, ready to do whatever the Lord said. One commentator, let me quote him, I like his words, he's much more articulate than I am. He said this. He says, And I think all the bloodshed must have drowned Saul in the sorrow of sin. He was shattered, penitent, broken, now lying beneath the conquering Christ, needing mercy. His heart is broken in repentance and sorrow, and at the same time, healed in faith. His conversion was shocking, sudden. All his doubts were erased and he knew the truth immediately. So we have Paul placing his faith in the Lord and submitting. Lord, what would you have me to do? That's always the, that's always the first step of a new convert. Lord, what do you want? I'm yours. I'm yours. For Paul, think of this in his mind right now with what he's been going through. The battle's over. It's over with. The battle is sort of raging in his heart and in his mind when a man named Stephen preached in a synagogue. Listen, if you're in this battle, end it today. Realize you are the one. Just like Paul had to admit, I'm the one who's wrong. I'm not fighting for God. I'm fighting against God. Don't fight the conviction. Just come before Him and place your faith in Christ. Now let's get to an important section here. 
Look at the last two verses. I want you to think about what happens here. This is what, when I was studying, grabbed me. I mean, of course, his conversion did. But I never really thought, I was just sitting there thinking on this. Let me read 8 and 9. And Saul arose from the earth. When his eyes were open, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand. So now he, he gets up. He's lost his sight. The men here he is with bring him the rest of the little bit of journey left into Damascus. And it says, And he was three days without sight, neither did eat nor drink. So he's led by these men who themselves are confused, wondering what just happened. He comes into Damascus to wait for what the Lord has said. No, that's what the Lord told him. The Lord wasn't too specific. He gave him enough. You head to Damascus. You just stay there. It'll be told you what you need to do. But even, even this incredible, brilliant man like Paul is going to need disciples. And we're going to be introduced to the man next week who's going to disciple him. Matter of fact, after Paul heads to Arabia, you know where he heads back. He goes right back to Damascus. <clears throat> the fact is, it's one of the reasons why we need the local church. To grow, to learn. Paul needed that. But before the Lord allows him to meet Ananias, he is, he's here in Damascus alone for three days and three nights. He can't see. He doesn't eat, nor does he drink. That's why I'm calling this one his contemplation. Think of what just happened. Think of who this man was, what just took place, and now here he is for three solid days. The Lord could have had, the Lord could have had Ananias ready as soon as he got into the city, but he didn't. No, 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 not yet. I want you just to sit back and think. That's what I want you to do. Well, we've lost that today, haven't we? That time just to sit back and meditate on what God has done. We have so much that occupies our time that it's, it's removed this idea of meditating upon God, of meditating upon His Word. <clears throat> the Lord wanted Paul in a place to think, what just happened to you? So think of his contemplation now. I believe this was an incredibly important three days in his life. Imagine his thoughts. His whole world is turned upside down. He would be thinking what happened to him. Even though he was physically blind, there is no question. He is seeing clearly, more clearly than he ever has before in his life. Things are making sense like never before. For the first time when he dwells upon Scripture, he has the indwelling Spirit of God that illuminates Scripture in truth. Think of that. Think of how much knowledge this man has of the Bible. Three days, nobody's there, only thing he can do is think on it. Remember, this guy would have the first five, the first five books of the Bible. Those are, we're not talking Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians right now. First fight, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He'd have them memorized. Memorized. He's here for three days contemplating, thinking what just happened. He's putting together the Old Testament Scripture with who Christ is. He would have to rethink the Bible completely. 
but he can now see it for the first time in proper context. I could just see him smiling over and over as all of a sudden Isaiah 53 comes to his mind. I get it. As he was understanding what was taking place as God was establishing what was necessary for sacrifices to take place each year. Each year. It's, it's, coming, it's coming to his mind, just like it did John the Baptist. Jesus was the Lamb of God. Everything pictured it. All these thoughts are hitting him. You can see him going back to Stephen's sermon. I think he was overjoyed knowing for the first time, wait, my sin debt is paid in full without the deeds of the law. He now sees the law as his schoolmaster to bring him to Christ, not his means of salvation. He would, he, he's now realizing, as he said in the book of Romans, what I thought was ordained to life, following the law, was actually ordained to death. He's thinking how the entire direction of his life has been changed. It's here as he's contemplating, you know what he's realizing? All those things that were gained to me, I can now count as loss. He can actually see those things that he thought were treasures in his life are but dung, as he calls them in Philippians. But he's also thinking about what he just did. The murdering. The taking men and women, destroying families, putting them in prison. Fighting against God with passion. You begin to understand why he's going to say, I am the chiefest of sinners. He had to think with such remorse. And at the same time, when he was thinking of that remorse... The truth of the grace of God was hitting him. I mean, if there's any man that God should have said, I I will not save you. I am just going to kill you and let you go to hell. Know what Paul was realizing? With tears, no doubt, streaming down his blinded eyes, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. He is realizing the truth of the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. This is a man who is realizing, I have been bought with a price. I believe these three days are serving as a foundation that would draw, and we know it. And we, you, it Paul is one of my heroes of the faith. You hear about Paul often from me from behind this pulpit for the last six years. This man's life, and he knows it, but he doesn't mind at all is going to be so much more difficult than it was before. What he's going to go through now, incredible. He wouldn't change it. (laughs) Not at all. He found truth. He understood how great God's grace was in his life to save him. Do you know how desperate we need those times of contemplation in our life to remember what God did for you so that it will help drive you to keep you going 
to help you to persevere. Instead of just getting blinded or, or, or so caught up with thoughts of all the things in the world, distracted by this and that. Never, never contemplating all the things that God has done for you. And then you wonder why you're so weak in your faith. Why so many Christians aren't willing to take a stand. Because they fail to realize all that God did for him. God put Paul, now Paul, think of who he was. I'm blinding you. I'm putting you into Damascus for three days and three nights. You're going to think what just happened to you. So in conclusion, let me say this. What we do see here is, if this man can be saved, any man can be saved. I mean, as he said, and he was serious, I am the chiefest of sinners. He was the biggest doubter, the biggest hater, the loudest critic. Fighting on purpose, directly against Jesus Christ. Not only would God save him, he would make him the, if you will, outside Lord Jesus Christ himself, but the hero of our faith. He wasn't traveling around signing Bibles. No, as we get into his life, as we're getting ready to dive into starting in chapter 12, it's going to be incredible how God uses this man. What he's going to endure, what he's going to suffer. And he never hesitates. You want to know why? He knew what took place this day. He knew who he was before. And what God did for him. What he knew was, as he refers to himself from this point on, I'm a slave for Christ. That's what I am. It's not my will anymore. It's his will. You understand, Paul lived that. When he said, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain, he believed it. And he lived it. With heads bowed and eyes closed. Now, maybe you have been under this battle in your life, like Paul was coming into chapter 9. That conviction hitting about salvation. Or maybe it's just hitting this morning, I don't know. What you need to know is this. The Bible says, it is appointed a man once to die, but after this the judgment. One day you're going to die, but as that verse says, you will be judged of God. That will happen. You're not going to avoid that. God's not going to say to you one day, you know what? I knew you were basically a good guy and you and I had our own thing worked out. That's not true. You're going to be judged of God. The Bible tells us he's going to judge you based on his law and you've broken his law just like I have. You'll be found guilty. And 100% of those found guilty are cast into a lake of fire. You see, something needs to take place where you look perfect. That's what Paul realized that day. He realized it's not by the deeds of the law. No man can be justified that way. It's not possible. The law wasn't there to provide a means of salvation. The law was there, Paul realized, to show us, I need salvation. I need Christ. You see, it's because you are guilty, because you have broken God's law, that God became a man 2,000 years ago. It's because of that fact. So you know what he did as a man? He lived the perfect life. As a man. And he did that for you. He lived the perfect life for you. He's the only one in all of human history that can go 
before the Father as a man, and the Father can say, you're perfect. He's the only one. But He lived that perfect life for you. When He went to the cross, the Bible teaches us what took place. This is Today, many people, they hear it, but they don't understand it when we say that Christ died for you. He did. He literally took your place in judgment that He could give you His perfect life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this about Jesus dying on the cross. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. When we say that Christ died for you, saying as Christ placed upon him your iniquity, your sin, and he was judged in your place, he died for you. He was judged for you. And after three days and three nights, he defeated death and rose again. And at the same time that he takes your sin, he gives you, as it says, his perfect life. God's righteousness, which is perfect and without sin. So if he takes your sin and you get his righteousness, guess what it looks like? You're perfect. God's requirement. Now, Christ died for all. But understand this. Even Christ stressed this. His death is not effectual for all. Only those who come to him in repentance and faith. Jesus himself said, few there be that find it. So how does it become effectual? It's when just like we saw with Saul, that conviction hits. It's not my way. It's not my righteousness. It's not what church I'm a member of. It's not my good works. It's not that I've been baptized. It's what Jesus Christ did for me. And then you humbly coming before Him with repentance and placing your faith in Him. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. Is there anyone here say, Pastor, yes, I have that battle going on. I do need Christ. Would you pray for me? I won't call you out. Just, just put your hand up where I can see it, and then you can put it back down. Let me see it, then you can put it back down. Anybody here like that? Just put your hand up where I can see it real quick, and then put it back down. Anybody here like that at all? I see a couple of small children is all I see. If you put your hand up, I missed it. I would need you to do it again. Anybody here like that at all? Just quickly put it up, then put it back down. All right, Christian. See, the one thing that grabbed me when I was going through this was those three days of taking time to meditate on those things that God has done. It puts life in perspective. It reminds you what you have, what He's done. And as Paul will say in Romans chapter 8, if He was willing to do that to save us, how shall I not also with him freely give us all things? In other words, you can come to him with the needs you have. If you need to come and pray this morning, you come and pray. Father in heaven, bless this invitation, Lord. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Turn to page 465. And if you need to come and pray, you come and pray.
Amen. Amen. If all hearts are clear, we're going to pray and be dismissed. Visitors, thank you for coming. We want to invite you back even tonight. We have our 5 o'clock service. We'll have about three or four of our men preaching tonight. Each will take about 10 minutes and, 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 and preach where the Lord's laid on their heart. Then Wednesdays, we're in the book of First Thessalonians. I put just as much into Wednesday nights as I do on a Sunday morning. There's no difference. It's the same preparation, same study, everything like that. And it's an amazing book. And uh, so we want to invite you out to that on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. as well. And, uh, and again, uh, keep in mind those few prayer requests. We do got still several families that are sick right now, so keep them in mind and, and praying for them. And uh, we will... Oh, yes, Brother June's class, uh, the 9 to 12-year-olds, you're going to meet by the piano here right after, right after we pray. All right, along those lines, Brother June, would you go ahead and pray and dismiss this, please?